through the Sermon on the Mount for, I don't know, since August, I think. And we're now approaching the close of the Sermon on the Mount. We're not, we're not quite at the end, but we're approaching it because today we reach the conclusion of the main discourse. Uh, everything after this is Jesus calling us to respond. Today is the end of the main body of the teaching. So I thought what I would do is kind of recap um, what we've looked at so far because when we get to chapter 7 verse 12, Jesus is going to wrap it up in this one powerful little verse. So let me recap and, and I'll start by reminding us that what we're, what we're looking at here is uh, Jesus giving a, a, a teaching or a discourse on kingdom citizenship. What it looks like to be a kingdom citizen. He starts off in the Beatitudes, chapter 5. And in these verses, verses 2 to 12, what we have are snapshots of uh, the characteristics of kingdom citizens. They, they're meek. They are uh, hunger. They're people who are merciful. They're pure in heart. They hunger to be righteous people. They're peacemakers, etc. That's, uh, the, those are some of the characteristics of kingdom citizens. And then Jesus goes right into another section about talking about how these kingdom citizens are to be salt and light in the world. This world needs Christians to be bearing the light of Christ, flavoring the world with Christ-likeness, saltiness, so that people will look at our lives and then give glory to our Father in heaven. Jesus is sending us into the world for the sake of bringing glory to God. And then in the next section, chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, Jesus talks about how his teachings are the fulfillment of the law. And this, this, is really, this is really the beginning of kind of the main body, and it goes all the way until what we look at today. But he starts off by talking about how his teachings are the fulfillment of the law, which is to say that Jesus is teaching us, uh, G, that what Jesus is teaching is nothing other than the goal at which the law hinted. He's not exactly saying that his teaching is identical to what the law taught. He's not quite saying that. But rather he's saying that the law anticipated and roughly forecasted what Jesus is now revealing with perfect clarity. And the result is that those who live in accordance with what Jesus is teaching right here in these chapters are in some sense, they're doing what the law expected. This is what the law pointed at. Live your life this way. And therefore, they're living a life of righteousness that exceeds the external and disingenuous righteousness that marked the lives of the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus cares about righteousness. And Jesus is teaching what kingdom citizens look like as they live out a certain type of righteousness in the world. That's what it means to be salty and that's what it means to be light bearing. It means we're living righteous lives. But I feel like there's a need to clarify, so I'm going to do a little parenthetical section here, to talk, to, to, to talk about righteousness. When we talk about Jesus calling Christians to live lives of righteousness, we have to make some nuances, because perhaps somebody is saying in their mind something to this effect. Now, I thought Christianity 
wasn't about Christians living lives of righteousness. Because isn't Christianity, isn't Christianity about Jesus living a life of righteousness for those who have failed to live a life of righteousness? Isn't that what Christianity is all about? And here's Jesus talking to us about how we have to live lives of righteousness. So how does what Jesus is teaching here intersect with the gospel? So I want to just pause for a minute and talk about this concept of righteousness. How do we think about living righteous lives without running into conflict with the gospel of the free grace of God? And I'm going to answer it in two steps. And the first step is I just want to affirm the gospel. God has sent his son to live a perfectly righteous life. And Jesus has given his perfect life of righteousness as a gift to people who have failed to live up to God's standard. So that they receive the gift of his righteousness imputed to their account. And the result of this gracious gift of righteousness is that those imperfect people are not judged in the courtroom of of God according to their own track record, but they're judged on the basis of Jesus' track record, which has been placed into their account. So that the judge looks at them and he sees that these people have a perfect record and his verdict is not guilty. This is what Paul refers to in Romans 4 as God's justification of the ungodly. It's a verdict that we receive in the courtroom of God, a not guilty verdict that we receive in the courtroom of God, even though we're ungodly. And it's because of the righteousness of Jesus. This is referred to as the doctrine of of justification. It is the heart of the gospel. The doctrine of justification. And it comes from this word to justify. To justify is for the judge, that's the, the, the action in which the judge makes the verdict. He justifies or he condemns. So this is called justification, Romans 5.18. One act of righteousness referring to the life of Jesus Christ, culminating in his death, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. It's that one act of Jesus. It's not my righteousness. It's not my act of obedience. I'm not earning anything in God's sight. Jesus earned it. Jesus merited it. And then he gives it to me as a gift. That's the gospel. So that's step one. Remember what we're trying to do is talk about how that gospel intersects with Jesus' call for us to live a righteous life. Well, step one is I just want to affirm the gospel. Now here's step two. Those who are justified... Those who are declared righteous, not on the basis of their own righteousness, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness, those who are justified begin to live differently. 
Everyone who is truly justified, everyone who is genuinely trusting in Jesus and has now had the merits of Jesus' life placed into their account, everyone who is truly justified is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit so that they begin to walk in newness of life. There is no such thing as a genuine Christian who has never been changed by God. No such thing. No such thing. We're changed. And we walk in newness of life. And the Bible has lots of ways of, of talking about this newness of life that now spills out from the heart of the born-again Christian who has been declared righteous in the sight of God. For example, Paul refers to this newness of life in Romans 6.17 as obedience from the heart. Obedience from the heart is one way to talk about the newness of life that God creates in a Christian. Or in Galatians 5.16, Paul refers to this newness of life as walking by the Spirit. That's one way to talk about the newness of life. You're not the same way that you used to be. You're obedient from the heart, now you walk by the Spirit. You walk by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And that spirit-empowered Christian obedience is then referred to in Galatians 5.22 as fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit's at work in your life. You're walking according to the Spirit. You're walking in obedience that's coming from the heart. And now you're bearing fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. And in 1 John... Chapter 2, verse 29, this spirit-filled obedience is referred to as righteousness. 1 John 2, 29, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Want to know the test of whether or not a person's been born again? Are they practicing righteousness? Because the practicing of righteousness is the necessary fruit that flows from the reborn person. What John says is that those who have been born again bear the fruit of that new birth and it's called practicing righteousness. The spirit-filled obedience that flows from the believer's new heart is called righteousness. Now, this righteousness is not uh, flawless. It's not as though we become Christians and then never sin again. This church would be empty if that's, if that's what the Bible taught, if that's what we believed. And this righteousness that God produces in us has never been and never will be the righteousness upon which we base our right standing in the courtroom of God. We are not justified on the basis of our own righteousness. We don't obey in order to earn a positive verdict in God's courtroom. We are justified on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone. And then, as a result, God produces a supernatural byproduct in our lives. The fruit of that salvation. 
And the Bible sometimes calls that fruit righteousness. And therefore, to bring it back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is just simply unafraid to talk about the necessity of practicing righteousness in our lives. Meaning, Jesus Christ demands that his disciples live lives of Holy Spirit-empowered obedience to his teachings, to his law-fulfilling teachings. Our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It is quantitatively, rather, qualitatively, and perhaps quantitatively for that matter, it is qualitatively different than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees because it's flowing from regenerated hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what does it look like when the followers of Jesus render spirit-filled Christian obedience to the law-fulfilling teachings of Jesus? And that's what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount focuses on. What does it look like for spirit-filled Christians to obey the law-fulfilling teachings of Jesus? The law speaks... Chapter 5, verse 21 and following. The law speaks of murder, for example. But what it points to is the heart issue of anger. And Christians must therefore watch their hearts and be eager to repent and reconcile. That's what it looks like for a Christian filled with the Spirit to walk in obedience and to live out righteousness from a heart that is transformed. The law speaks of adultery, chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. But what it points to is the heart issue of lust. And therefore, Jesus requires that Christians are radical in the pursuit of their internal fidelity. Jesus goes on, the law speaks of divorce. But what it points to is the the heart issue of covenant faithfulness, which Jesus demands that we maintain in light of God's merciful faithfulness to us. Jesus goes on. What's this look like? Well, the law speaks of taking oaths. Chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. But what it points to is the heart issue of honesty and integrity, which must mark the Christian's life. Chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. The law speaks of retaliation. But what it points to is God's compassionate desire to protect us and to protect others From excessive payback. Even to the point of calling Christians to do good to the evil man. In hopes of winning him to Christ. Jesus goes on. The law speaks of love for neighbor. But what it points to is Jesus' demand that we act like our Father. Who overflows with love for both friends and enemies. That's what righteousness looks like. That's what the fulfillment of the law looks like. And Jesus goes on. We're to be people who give to the needy without hypocrisy, with a heart that's free from the lust of the praises for men. We're to be people who pray and fast without hypocrisy, free from that deep heart longing to be praised by men and instead seeking the heavenly reward of being with and knowing and being affirmed by our Heavenly Father. Jesus says, chapter 6, verse 19, we're to live lives that reflect that the treasure of our hearts is in heaven. It's not money or possessions. That's what righteousness looks like. That's what the law-fulfilled righteousness looks like. 
Chapter 6, verse 25 and following. We're to be free from the anxiety that comes from idolizing money. God is our Father. He will provide what we need. So there's no need to be anxious. We can give our heart fully to the work of the kingdom. We can seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first His righteousness. That's our priority. Chapter 7, verse 1 to 6. Here's what righteousness looks like. Here's what the law looks like in its fulfilled form. We are to reject self-righteous judgment of others, being careful to accurately evaluate our own hearts and recognize that we're sinners in need of grace and that those, and then as those who have been humbled by an awareness of our own sin, we gently and lovingly help others who are struggling with their own battles. That's what it looks like to live a life of righteousness. We're to be people of persevering prayer. This is what it looks like to live out the Christian faith. These are the types of people we're called to be. This is the type of God-honoring righteousness that should be spilling out from the reborn heart, the spirit-filled heart, spilling out into our hands and our feet and our mouths and our relationships. We're called by our Lord and our Savior to be loving people. That's what it looks like. Gracious people, faithful people, truthful people, generous people, prayerful, trusting, peaceful humble, helpful citizens of heaven sent into the world where we live lives of heavenly righteousness in the midst of broken people who need light. Not in order to earn favor with God. We don't do it because of that, but we do it because He has already graciously given us favor by faith alone in the life, death, and resurrection of our King Jesus the Messiah. And this is what the law pointed to. That's what the law pointed to. This is the righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And now Jesus wants to wrap it all up in one simplified, all-encompassing statement. In chapter 7, verse 12. So open your Bibles if you're not there. Chapter 7, verse 12. He's going to wrap it up. And he starts with a good wrap-up word. So. (laughs) Deep breath after that whole section. So. Or therefore. Or in conclusion. So. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. It's a great, it's a great ending. It's a concluding statement. It's a, it's a bookend to the teaching that began in chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus said in chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And now, the bulk of everything in between is his explanation of what the law and the prophets are pointing to. That's what I just rambled on about for a few minutes. Now he brings it to a conclusion. A final summary statement that he says captures the very thing the law and the prophets were targeting. Chapter 7, verse 12. This is the law and the prophets. What is? Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. 
that is. That's the law and the prophets. It's great. The golden rule. There it is. So familiar to us. Probably not familiar to them, but familiar to us. So simple, compact. I'm thinking as I'm reading this this week, there's got to be like something to this. There's got to be more than meets the eye here because somehow it adequately captures the heart of God revealed in the Law and the Prophets. Somehow it adequately captures the teachings about anger and lust and faithfulness and truthfulness and love for enemies and giving and judging others. Everything Jesus just unpacked for the last three chapters is somehow encapsulated in this little axiom. This is the law and the prophets. So let's just dig into it a little bit, see if we can't just chew on it, because we'll run right by it if we don't. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Fascinating approach Jesus takes here. He says, start with what you want. Start there. Start with what you want. Think about it. How, how would you like to be treated in this situation? What do you wish others would do for you in this situation? Uh, how would you like for them to speak to you if you were in this situation? What do you wish that you had that others could have provided for, for you in, in that situation? Start with what, with what you want. Start with what you need. Now, realize that Jesus is not advocating sinful desires here. He's not saying, in your wildest and most sinful dreams, what would you want? He's, he's, not, he's not advocating that. He's saying, think about the God-honoring desires and needs that you have, which means that we're talking about desires that are governed by the truth of God's word, we're talking about recognizing that Jesus Christ is the chief treasure of the universe and ultimately our greatest need. So we have that in mind as we're thinking about what would I want in this situation? What are my God-honoring desires? What would, what would be a God-honoring thing that I would desire in that situation? And then Jesus says, and then flip the table and provide that for somebody else. It's fascinating because it starts with self-interest, but it ends in service. I don't know why he does it this way. The Bible says the same thing in a lot of other places. It starts with imagining your own God-honoring happiness and ends in the pursuit of somebody else's joy. Now, I want to speak to a, a, a kind of a distracting misunderstanding uh, for just a moment kind of to get it out of the way, because somebody might be thinking that this is generally good advice, but there are instances in which it doesn't really work very well. Like, what about the times when you want something for yourself, and it would be a good God-honoring desire, let's say, but you know that if you provide that for person X here, it wouldn't bless them. Like, for example, I don't know if you ever saw the Simpsons episode, where Homer buys a bowling ball for Marge with the name Homer on the bowling ball. (laughs) 
And uh, isn't Jesus, right, right? Do unto others what you'd have them do unto you. I, I would love it if Marge would buy me this whole bowling ball. She takes up bowling after that. Pretty funny. Isn't Jesus' teaching just going to produce a lot of misguided giving to others? Because it's really, you know, I'm just doing to other people what they want to do to me. Isn't that like, I'm not paying attention to their love language or something like that? And the answer to that question is, well, I think you just missed the point. <laughs> if Homer Simpson thinks that he's fulfilling what Jesus is talking about right here, he just, he just missed the point. Because the point isn't to impose our, our personal preferences on others. That, that, really, it, that doesn't get at the heart of Christ's teaching here. The point is to engage your mind, think about what would be a blessing to that person if I were in their shoes. Think about what would be a blessing to that person. The point is to cultivate the habit of thinking about the good and the blessing of other people. Walk into a room and instead of thinking, you know, here I, ha- here I am, learn the habit of thinking, there you are. Other fo- others focused, blessing, that's the point. And by getting us to consider it from the perspective of our own self-interest, what would I wish that others would do for me if I were in that position, we're better enabled to now minister to the needs and the desires of the people in our lives because we have become considerate of what they need. We've just thought about it. We've just taken a second to just think about what they need. And therefore, we become more effective agents of their ultimate happiness. I'm standing outside, or I'm standing inside yesterday as my neighbor is, um, you know, her, her driveway wasn't plowed, and her car was parked way up in the driveway, and uh, some guy from across the street, he's coming over, he's trying, to back, he's trying to back her car out, and he can't get it, and I'm just sitting in the window, you know, like, watching them. She's stuck. <laughs> now just consider for a moment, Jeremy, what if you were in her shoes? Oh, okay. I should go help. <laughs> I mean, what this does is just, just teach, teach yourself by the grace of God the habit of thinking about what other people need. You maybe missed the, my, I, I kind of breezed by that comment a while ago, but, but yeah, you, do you walk into a room and you're like, here I am, anyone? Here I, instead of walking into the room and just thinking, who, who needs blessing, who needs blessing? It's just a different way of thinking. Jesus says, take that self-interest, which you're very good at, take that self-interest and just learn to use it as a tool for thinking about how to minister to other people. We become agents of those people's ultimate happiness. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. This is the law and the prophets. Diligently think about and pursue that which will bring the ultimate good and eternal happiness to others. That's what we're after. We're not called to go out there and and shine our light for the sake of annoying the world. And sure, that's going to happen. It's going to happen because people are going to misunderstand us. They're going to misunderstand 
why we are the way that we are. But that's not the agenda of Jesus, and it won't be the final assessment of our lives when we stand at the end if we are living the way that Jesus is calling us right here. Jesus isn't sending us to live salty, righteous lives in the midst of a perishing world for the sake of rubbing that salt into the wounds of the world. That's not why we're being salty. He's sending us for the sake of bringing flavor into the world by doing good and providing happiness for others. Happiness, true, deep happiness. We want their good. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and what? Grumble about how miserable Christians make the world? See your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. People watch the way that we live and they give God glory. That's a happy heart. People don't go around glorifying things with dull hearts. We're in, the, we're in the business of serving the happiness of people and not a shallow happiness. Ultimately, we're in the business of helping them to, to see, to taste the ultimate treasure that they will glorify God because of the way that we have served them. Because we've considered and pursued their good. That's what it means to be salty. To enhance the lives of others with the light of Christ. And you know what this is called? The Bible has another name for this. Sometimes the Bible has a lot of terms that talk about the same thing from a lot of angles. Do you know what it's called? When Christians live like this in the world. When Christians live spirit-filled, obedient, others-focused enriching lives of righteousness in the pursuit of the good of others. You know what it's called? It's called love. It's called love. That's what it is. We do to other people what we wish that they would do to us. It's called love. Jesus is calling us to be loving. And when we do that, we're doing what the law pointed to. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Same same logic. Think about how you would want to be loved, and then love your neighbor in that way. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So that's Jesus talking just a few chapters later. Matthew chapter 22. When it comes to the requirements of the law, with regards to the treatment of other people at least, when we love others as ourselves, when when we do to them whatever we wish they would do to us, we're doing precisely what the law indicated. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them by calling his people, you and me, to be people of love. To discover what's best for others, to discover what will secure their ultimate happiness, and to give ourselves in the pursuit of it. And here's what it amounts to. Service. 
We've been enlisted into a life of servitude. It's really what it comes down to. We are called to be servants. That's what it, that's what it looks like. A life of laying down our own lives, our energies, our preferences, our resources, our time in the, services, in the service of others for the sake of, of their good. We've been set free. We've been set free from sin. We've been set free from death. We've been set free from the wrath of God and the curse of the law because Jesus took that curse upon himself so that we don't have to suffer it. We've been set free from the tyrannical rule of self. But it doesn't mean we're set free to call our own shots. We're enlisted now in a labor of love. The labor of love for others. And that means that Christians are in the business of service. Man, if there's, one, if there's one thing we should be amazing at, it's serving others. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There it is again. It just keeps popping up. And here Paul says that love, that call to love is a call to serve. It's a call to serve. Think about what's good for people. What would delight your heart if you were in their shoes? What do they need? How can you shine the light of Christ? Think about it and then serve them. This is love. This is the law and the prophets. This is the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. Serve so that the world might see your good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. I'd like for the the worship team to go ahead and come up, and I'd like for you to bow your heads and pray with me. The reality is, here's the the reality. I feel like a big old hypocrite up here preaching this message today. Because I was not a good husband this morning, and I was certainly not thinking about what... uh, would be a blessing to my wife. And I was only concerned about the ways in which she was doing things that were not a blessing to me. Anybody in, is there anybody in your life right now where you're thinking, okay, I have really failed to do exactly what Jesus called me to right here? Why don't you bow your heads? Why don't you just think about that? in here who have failed to love. There are people in here who have failed to to live out this righteousness that Jesus is calling us to. Just like me, they failed. And the good news is that this righteousness is not the basis of your justification. There's not a person in this room who's going to stand before God on judgment day and get a 
good verdict on the basis of the, how well they have loved their neighbors. The good news is that Jesus never failed to love his neighbors. Jesus loved them all the way to the grave. He poured out his life in service of us. And even though we've been failures, he's been a complete success. And the righteousness of Jesus now is poured out for sinners like you and me. Just take a moment to to confess your sin to the Lord and rejoice in the good news of the gospel. who uh, empowers his people, bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all of God's people said, Amen.